postmodernism, postmodernism, anti-system type people and postmodernism. Give me some names and so on. And who are these postmodern egalitarian neo-Marxists? And where do you see any kind even of, of Marxism? Anti-system type people. And I know it sounds like a bloody paranoid conspiracy theory, but. Welcome to One Dime Radio. I am very excited to be here with the Lit Crit guy. He makes videos and he's also an academic. And we are going to be talking about postmodernism, a very big topic, a very complicated topic, and a highly villainized subject, especially by the likes of the notorious Jordan P. Peterson. And uh, we feel like it's a really useful topic to break down, uh, not just as a stylistic tendency, which is people often like to generalize, but also is a historical epoch, which is, at least I find, the more interesting aspect of what postmodernism, or also referred to as postmodernity, is. So we'll be going over that and also debunking some misconceptions. But first, before we get into that, uh, John, would you like to introduce yourself, maybe plug the links as to where people could find you and stuff <laughs> yeah, like that? Yeah, no problem, no problem. Uh, yeah, my name is John. I go by the Lit Crit Guy online. Um, I am a writer and academic. Um, I am also I'm also a terminal poster. Um, got 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 to be. I'm always I'm always there in the content minds. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at the Lit Crit Guy. I'm also on YouTube. Um, I've just started this year making uh, video essays about culture, aesthetics, and theory. Um, I am also the co-host of um, a podcast called uh, Horror Vanguard, where me and a very good friend of mine sit down and talk about uh, radical politics, leftist theory, and and horror movies. Um, you can find Horror Vanguard wherever you get your podcasts from, uh, whatever whatever distribution network you use. Uh, but the easiest way to find me is on Twitter and over on YouTube. Nice. Yeah, I haven't actually checked out the podcast yet, but I have checked out some of your videos. But I really like the uh, work, a horror story, and uh, the one about the weird and the eerie. Those are really excellent, especially the the work, a horror story one. I highly recommend everybody check that for sure. And also check out the podcast while you're at it. Um, but yeah, we anyhow we got in touch actually because I know you you write these interesting guides uh, to different theorists to kind of summarize their work and stuff that might help. But the key ideas, and I was always interested in the ideas of Frederick Jameson, mainly because he's the, one of the um, so-called postmodern thinkers who I've tried to get into, but I find extremely difficult just because of his very scholastic, complicated writing style. Um, there are some other postmodern theories that, theorists I have gotten into, but I've gotten a little bit more used to their style, like uh, Jean Baudrillard and... Um, Michel Foucault, those are really the two postmodern theorists I've gone into a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but Jameson is someone whose ideas from what I've gathered, at least I have a very amateur understanding of him, but I found very interesting and thought you would be perfect to bring on since you have a guide about Frederick Jameson, which uh, you sent to me. Um, just starting off there, before we get into J who Jameson's ideas, who's often a, a key thinker in the understanding what we call postmodernism how would you define postmodernism generally um 
And what are the easiest ways to understand that? It's a big question, but I know we'll, we'll, it'll spiral into a bunch of other questions. Okay, so there, to, to my mind, there are um, two kind of broad ways of talking about post-modernity. Um, and let's, let's deal with the first one, which I think is the less correct one, before we get on to the one which I think is more accurate. So firstly, there is this idea of thinking of postmodernity as um, a kind of set of aesthetic markers, which generally then spirals outward to include a certain conception of politics. And this is, this is, um, this is the kind of thing that people like Jordan B. Peterson talk about quite a lot. Uh, so in postmodernity, uh, everything is marked by relativism. Everything is marked by um, an attention to the disruption of hierarchies, um, and it isn't. It isn't. It isn't difficult to see why this is a kind of tempting narrative for the right, for the political right, right? Because <clears throat> what that does is that it allows you to kind of then talk about, basically, to kind of lapse into a, a sort of weird conspiracism. Um, it is not a surprise that the right, when they start talking about postmodernity, lapse into the old uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory of cultural Marxism. Um, this idea that uh, post-1956 um, and Khrushchev's uh, speech, it became uh, kind of morally unthinkable to actually openly be a Marxist or a communist. Um, and uh, therefore, the Marxists shifted their attention from the political sphere and the economic sphere to the sphere of culture. Um, that, that's the narrative that people like Jordan B. Peterson talk about, right? They, mm. they, they talk about this in terms of like, um, uh, you know, it's sort of like that uh, amazing PragerU graph of like time on one axis and then a declining artistic standard on the other. <laughs> and it's like those, those, those darn cultural Marxists, those darn postmodern relativists who don't believe in anything, who are, who are nihilists, who are out to destroy um, a certain conception of, of, art or culture or morality or whatever yeah um, it's like a highly ridiculous idealist uh grand narrative to uh, pigeonhole all the people they don't like into one big conspiracy yeah exactly and and the problem with that theory is that it doesn't have any explanatory potential right it so not only is it factually wrong uh, and it is jordan jordan b peterson doesn't really know what he's talking about um but it 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 lacks it lacks the kind of key test for any sort of theoretical approach, with it, which is, can this explain um, causation? And it can't, right? It, you, they decided to do this for what end? Uh, we don't really know, um, which is why it lapses into those ridiculous conspiracies about the destruction of the West and blah, blah, blah. It's because they just hate the West and they just like yeah, you exactly. know, power for no reason. They just want to yeah, destroy exactly. everything because they're bad. Yeah, they they wanna they want they're relevant the world works. because they're 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 bad. Why do they want to do this? Because they're bad. You end up trapped in this kind of circular logic. Um, a much more a much more compelling way of thinking about uh, postmodernism is exactly what Jameson um, develops, which is that postmodernism is a cultural expression of a particular hist historical period. Uh, triggered by certain uh, shifts in capitalist modes of production and capitalist cultural production. Um, it is not something that we have a kind of moral stance towards, um, because how can you? It's just something that you 
um, you, you exist within. I mean, arguably, there is some debate as to whether we're, we're in a kind of post-postmodern period. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, was, that was actually something I wanted to get into towards the end. Just uh, because then, I think that's interesting is whether we're still in this epoch. But anyhow, yeah. So um, Jameson, the, the, the title of Je- one of Jameson's most famous books is Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism. Um, now, a very, a very sort of aha, I'm so clever gotcha is to go late capitalism. Well, it doesn't seem like capitalism is going to be is lately dying or anything. But but really, really, the best way to think about that title is um, postmodernism is a is the cultural logic of capitalism of late. Um, you know, it's just lately this is what capitalism is doing, culturally speaking. So Jameson mm. develops these, lots of these ideas in the 1980s. Um, and then the book itself comes out, I believe, in 1990. Um, and it's first an essay in the New Left Review uh, in the mid-1980s as an attempt to kind of uh, do explicitly Marxist historical materialism on contemporary cultural phenomena. So, so what I think is a much more accurate and actually much cultural more Marxism. <laughs> oh god gotcha. no, ex- exposed um <laughs> what i think is a much more kind of fruitful way of talking about this is to think about it in terms of um a historical period with certain uh phenomena that produces certain uh kind of cultural objects and requires a certain kind of attitude in order to um, understand historicize and theorize it Yeah, it's um, also correct me if I'm wrong. The term late in late capitalism, I think, well, I think uh, he gets it from Jameson gets it from the the theorist Ernest Mandel, I think, who first coined the term late capitalism. And I I think it's also referred to, um, I might be misunderstanding, but that it's also the period of capitalism when it really starts, stops kind of innovating itself. And it sort of cannibalizes itself by finding other ways to reproduce itself other than um, sort of transforming. So like an example is just rebranding past cultural products, reselling the same things or shifting more power towards advertising instead of technological advancements. And we can kind of see that with the fact that a lot of the biggest companies that are around focus, at least commodity companies, maybe excluding the tech companies but you know the typical mcdonald's uh oreo or pepsi and whatnot they spend so much just on their advertising budgets and their ads get more kind of desperate in the sense that they are so detached from the actual products and they they try to appeal to psychological needs and anyway it's just it's a way to kind of reproduce itself by selling the same old shit but rebranding it and I think that's that's part of the characteristic of late capitalism, is it not? No, you you're completely you're completely correct. So like, the whole point of calling it late capitalism is is to put it another way, it's like this is this is sort of capitalism proper has completely arrived, right? There are no there are no um, you know uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union um, in 1986, there is no alternative to capitalism anymore. There is no actually 
um, existing uh, alternative, except in very kind of narrow, very, very small kind of enclaves. So capitalism proper kind of wins, right? But really what that means is there is no, there is no kind of real need for uh, any of the revolution uh, of previous centuries in, in either social relations or in means of production. So really capitalism has kind of nowhere left to go physically, spatially, and it, so the, the whole point is to, to go, okay, well, we have to go somewhere else. We have to, we, expansion is demanded by the nature of the system. So we have to expand into things like the psyche. We have to expand into, even into the unconscious, into the dream, uh, into mm. the imagination, in, into culture itself. So, so Jameson makes the point that like, and this totally backs up what you said, right? Jameson makes the point that culture has not, um, there was this idea that culture and politics or culture and economics were kind of autonomous spheres of existence. Uh, Marcuse, the, the Herbert Marcuse, uh, kind of the theorist of the, the 60s new left, would talk about art as having a kind of autonomy and independence mm-hmm. of, of capitalist economics. And, and that would be the, the, the point at which you could kind of stage a resistance. Uh, and Jameson says, actually, that doesn't exist anymore. Art and culture have kind of exploded uh, that sphere has kind of been blown open and, and blown apart. Uh, and so has kind of been integrated into this network of, of uh, capitalist expansion. So you can- Yeah, that right. makes perfect sense. Um, because it, it, ca- uh, capitalism finds a way now to co-op virtually everything, including its own resistance. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. even like so-called political rappers who are in many cases, overtly anti-capitalists are easily co-opted by the system like Tupac Shakur, Pink mm-hmm. Floyd, um, Kurt Cobain, most notoriously. Um, yeah, it's they'll, even even uh, revolutionary thinkers like Martin Luther King, they now plaster him on shirts you sell on Amazon. Or I saw recently they even plastered him on cop cars, which is insane. Uh, um, like, like Martin Luther King is completely integrated into Fortnite. Like, like <laughs> oh yeah like, that that too yeah i saw that well. like is is that not just like the the kind of perfect like paradigmatic example of what we're talking about right mm-hmm. even 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 an avowed socialist and anti-capitalist is is now seamlessly recuperated and incorporated not into kind of like a physical asset nothing is nothing is kind of made or bought or sold but into this kind of digital dreamscape this immateriality of capitalism yeah it's it might come to some surprise to people who aren't aware of this point of view because both on people on the right who will associate marxism or leftists with postmodern culture or even some you know less well-read marxists who think postmodernism is what ruined marxism there is some people who kind of believe that um, they would be surprised that people like Jameson, well, who who is pretty much a Marxist himself, but he, I would say, is more or less of an exception uh, when it comes to the people associated with postmodern theory, who are, for the most part, actually kind of not Marxist. But um, he is, Frederick Jameson is, and the association he gives to postmodernism is not a it's not a positive one. And that this is the thing is he's writing about this culture that is around him and arguably still exists today in a more intensified form. And it's not something that he sees we should celebrate, but rather that we should try to rescue the lost Marxist 
grand narrative that does not no longer exist. I, I think that's his desire, sort of, so to speak. He's not seeing this postmodern culture and saying, yeah, it's good that nobody believes in anything or that everything is commodifiable and that there's no sense of yeah. history. I mean, actually, in another book of Jameson's um, uh, called The Political Unconscious, like the whole oh, I've tried to read that one. It's I could it's, not. It so it's hard. pretty. It's pretty tough. Um, yeah. But he he makes the point that actually, the only way that you can kind of make like he says that Marxism is it, it is is pretty much the most effective way of actually understanding your contemporary situation. Uh, why? Because it's the only thing that that doesn't allow everything to fracture off into kind of isolation it's a it's a narrative that sort of unites everything and has a way of understanding how these things interrelate um dialectically like uh, a, a lot of people expect marxists to be sort sort of interested in a very sort of very narrow number of things like marxists can write about the economy marxists can write about history and that's about it that's all we're allowed to mm-hmm. talk about but jameson is like actually if marxism can do it can be of any relevance. It has to be able to provide a way of making sense of the world in totality, right? Because if capitalism is a totalizing system, um, which it is, then we have to have a way of understanding, of attempting to understand that totality. Uh, And a lot of people get kind of a little bit kind of twitchy around that word because it sounds dangerously close to totalitarianism. Um, (laughs) But actually... Aiming for an for a totalized a a totality an understanding of totality actually helps us place uh, difference and and um, the kind of um, atomization of contemporary of contemporary capitalism into some bigger context from which we can make sense of it in the first place. Yeah, it isn't Marxism is indeed super useful in this regard because you can um, you can really historicize how we came how this culture came to be. And I think he talks about cognitive mapping, how we kind yeah. of need to historicize everything and sort of um, attach these problems together and what their causes and effects are, because that is very much lost in the culture of postmodernism. Things are very seemingly disconnected. And because we're in a um, culture of mass media, we have all this information being flooded at us. We sort of lose our um, sense of history and stay into a perpetual present and you, you, it's. I think Mark Fisher, notoriously, who's very uh, influenced by Jameson, talks about the blip culture and how um, we're in this perpetual present, always having our news on our smartphones. And you can see this uh, now with a lot of the people who see problems in society, but they have no sense of history. So they'll kind of diagnose things in very peculiar ways, such as, you know, the people on the right who will say this radical SGW feminism is a product of this grand conspiracy woke culture that dates back to these postmodern thinkers, or they'll, they'll, you know, they'll look at the sort of capitalist fake woke feminism that you see in a lot of commercials, or that's very commodifiable, you know, the girl boss culture and whatnot. And they'll, they'll fail to see that as a product of late capitalist commodification and rather as sort of this grand conspiracy. And that, that really comes from like a total lack of attachment to history. I mean, this is, this is one of Jameson's most famous sayings, which is always historicize, right? Always 
Um, and he says in the opening of the cultural logic of late capitalism, he says that what he's trying to do is think historically about and in an age which has forgotten how to do so. Right, that because to to think historically gives you both gives you a uh, a kind of broader understanding, but it also shows you areas in which the future can be different. So, um, one one of the things that Jameson's super concerned with is like the remnants of modernism, um, and we can think about this in terms of um, a phrase that Mark Fisher used, like popular modernism, where he talked about cu culture that was kind of like challenging and avant-garde and intellectual and political but was also very very popular and he pins a lot of it on um certain kinds of music from the 70s and 80s certain kinds of films and tv and he calls this a kind of popular modernism because um, modernism was about the transformation of consciousness right um, that's why there were was um you know in philosophy you had existentialism you had modernist poetry you had expressionism in the visual arts what you were trying to do was try was you were trying to uh, articulate and transform a kind of consciousness which often had very explicitly political ends so mm -hmm. uh, modern modernism collapses in in the kind of ruin and fire and disaster of world war ii you know uh theodore adorno famously says um uh after 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 auschwitz no no poetry right because yeah no no that, uh, no that, poetry after auschwitz because yeah. because in some ways, the uh, the rationalist, horrifying, te technologized mass murder of people, and the, that modernist uh, aesthetic scene are kind of connected, and Adorno is always deeply kind of aware of that impulse within culture. But there was all, that did not that was not necessarily predetermined, right? There was there was a a kind of historical struggle over modernism. And Jameson is is one of the few Marxist thinkers. I think he still writes extensively about the possibility of utopia, right? This idea. That's of... what I really like about him too. Yeah, is he's not. Um, yeah, we'll get into that. But I find it's a problem actually with Marxists today. Is um, I know it is a, a tendency in Marxism to reject utopianism, and back then people like Marx and Lenin had their correct reasons for doing so because there were uh, many um, many anarchists and other Marxists who didn't really have concrete ideas as how to achieve a classless society or to go about revolution and just had vague ideas or sometimes naive ideas. But in today's world, in a world in which we can't even imagine alternative futures, I think Jameson is totally correct to want to envision utopia because we need to do that. Because a tendency I see on the left now is a lot of, a lot of Marxists are kind of sort of capitulating to the past and only trying to resurrect older revolutionary figures. And I, I know, I believe it's fine to historicize. We should be learning about past history. That's totally important. But to kind of just um, reclaim old aesthetics from past socialist movements and adopt them as, the own, as one's own for a, a current socialist movement in Western countries is very questionable and I think really a uh, product of late capitalism in a certain sense because it's the or hauntology as Mark Fisher would call it the inability to imagine new futures so it's just reclaiming these old aesthetics and just reappropriating them so yeah I think we do need um, yeah. to envision I'm, utopia I like his Walmart essay a lot the one about yeah, Walmart yeah, as yeah, utopia yeah. Walmart yeah, that's as excellent utopia. Um, and 
And this is where it comes into this idea of cognitive mapping, because Jameson says that utopia is a spatial problem, right? How do we how do we organize and manage this kind of shared collective space, which I actually think is a super interesting way of putting it, because it makes the kind of problem of utopia concrete. So it doesn't it doesn't like make it as this sort of abstract. Oh, one day we will arrive and everything will be fine. Um, this is why he's really good on on things like architecture, because architecture is about spatialization. It's about how do we organize the space that we collectively share. Um, and so uh, this this question of utopia, I think, is really is is still really missing from like uh, kind of leftist discourse because you know we still exist in this idea of like mitigation, right? That's that. I think you're completely right. You know we're still trapped in that fish, fisherman problem of like, we can either mitigate the very worst things about the capitalist present, or we can kind of try and offer, you know, the kind of social democratic consensus that emerged after the war um, in like 1940 mm -hmm. to 1960. And it's like, there isn't, there isn't a, uh, there was a kind of brief moment, I think, where there was more discussion of like, what does the future look like? Um, but, uh, post-Trump and in the kind of Biden era, a lot of it seems to kind of crystallized again into like, th there is no alternative. All we can do is kind of try and try and mitigate the present in some ways rather than actually uh, uh, force, a, force the emergence of the new. Well, there is certainly a trend I noticed, and I think this is somewhat of a product of the perpetual present, not historicizing is yeah. we tend to fall into these cycles, uh, especially in the United States, where there is sort of a bit left that actually is almost resurrected under Republican presidencies. And there's this opposition, you start to have a little bit more discourse. But towards the end, when it comes election time, it and it falls down to a moderate, lukewarm Democrat versus a Republican, the Republican becomes the boogeyman and all the energy is just channeled towards electoralism again. And you start to have entire channels that shift their, especially on YouTube left-wing channels that shift all their content towards covering elections and dunking on Republicans, you know, and it becomes very tiring. And it's, we seem to not really learn the lessons as to how this is a way to easily take attention away. It's, it's a way to recuperate left-wing sentiment and just channel it to the democratic party. And I think it's it, the fact that we haven't learned from the Obama years to me suggests that, yeah, people aren't historicizing. They're, they're just not learning from history. People are just uh, in the present. So we'll, we'll hear a lot of articles about uh, and videos about Trump and whatnot, or the next Republican and all the energy is put towards that. It's, I, I'm always struggling and how do we can overcome this? And I'm curious um yeah it's a I big mean, problem yeah i mean i think there is no easy solution but right what really what, i mean what really i say this on harvard all the time but like historical materialism really helps uh kind of unlock a lot of kind of current events because you suddenly realize that what's presented to you is a kind of new problem or is a problem that is like insoluble a, a contradiction that you can't can't kind of move past has a historical genealogy. It can be understood. Uh, there are um, previous iterations of the same problem or of the same kind of knot. I mean, it's like 
basically, basically, uh, it's from an external point of view, it seems like you basically have a kind of Xeroxed copy of the Obama era with with Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, it's it's very, very similar. It's been kind of photocopied, but it's also faded. Um, and it's also it's also sort of like desperately trying to provide a sense of stability, which is a kind of very psychologically and politically powerful thing to offer. Right. You can go, you know, you've had four years of, of shock and, and, and chaos, but now you promised stability and continuity. Um, but that's also an opportunity. And that's a powerful promise in post-modernity. It's just that simple. Everything will be fine. Everything will be fine, right? Everything, like the the great phrase is like, everything will get back to normal. Everything will be normal again. Don't you want things to be normal? Um, Yeah. yeah. Or or, yeah, with COVID, the new normal, which is a pretty big delusion. But yeah, it's powerful because people want that sense of stability. Uh, But but this is what it does is that it separates you from history, right? It's set. Mm-hmm. If you go, things will be normal. Things will be, be like they always were. And you go, hang on, actually how things always were is, was this incredibly unstable, contingent, contested thing. Um, so like when you, when you have a kind of historical perspective, you realize, um, you realize the possibility of an alternative. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is why I really, find Jameson interesting as a thinker is because he doesn't fall into the trap that a lot of the thinkers associated with writing about postmodernism fall into, which is the sort of armchair cynicism, which I think I would definitely critique Baudrillard of people who do analyze also, who also analyze postmodernity, but they tend to just analyze it from almost a fatalistic totalizing point of view and don't really offer any sort of way out. In the case of Baudrillard, kind of outright abandoning Marxism and taking a, although I wouldn't say he's entirely fatalistic, he has some emancipatory points, but it's very vague and armchair-like, unlike Jameson gives us a framework that is historical materialism to really analyze that. And from there, like you said, we can look towards solutions, but also people like Foucault. Foucault less so analyzes post-modernity. And more so, he's, he, I would say, which can bring us to the other part of the conversation after, um, stylistically postmodern. But people like him, too, are associated, are very, have this armchair tendency of maybe having useful critiques, but no way out. That's, mm-hmm. that's the other thing. Whereas I think it's important. We maybe do need a, a narrative of some sort to, uh, or at least a useful narrative. And I, in my opinion, also historical materialism is probably the best we got to connect all these issues and see how we go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you, if you, if you have the, that kind of historical sense, it allows you to have a, a kind of dialectical relationship to history, right? You can look backwards and you can understand your present, but that is only a spur to look forward to a possible uh, different politics of the future. Um, Actually, explain that for a second. Uh, I throw that word, a lot, word around a lot too, dialectics, but I notice a lot of people um, often new to Marxism misuse that term a lot. Or would you, uh, How would you explain dialectics to the layperson? Uh, well, the way that I would put it is th- it is the process of thinking through contradiction. Yeah, I would have said the exact same. That's that, uh, and and this, you know, it gets spoiled down into 
thesis, antithesis, synthesis, totally which, wrong, is not, yeah. which is not totally uh, accurate or useful. But well, it's about, yeah, it's the synthesis part is wrong. Yeah, but it's, yeah, about, yeah. it's about confronting the fact that thoughts, kind of like what we might call capsule P philosophy, begins when you encounter contradiction. Right? Yeah, exactly. So we, we tend to have a very um, one-dimensional view of history. So we either look towards mm -hmm. the future or, and, and that gets, that's utopianism. That's very naive. That's very idealistic. Or we look towards the past. And that is often nostalgic or um, even uh, reactionary. Like reactionary politics is, is the politics of nostalgia, right? Trying to return to a prelapsarian mythical past before everything went wrong because of, you know, insert enemy here, like the SJWs or the woke. Yeah, whatever. exactly. It's part of how I actually like to define ideology is yeah. ideology is what basically, um, it's basically what tries to, uh, to get rid of contradiction. It tries to simplify things in grand narratives and have, yeah, gets rid of that contradiction. So we can see that obviously with the right most, uh, the Steven Pinker types who have this enlightenment idea that everything is fine, everything's getting better, or the right-wing uh, reactionaries who think that everything used to be fine, we can go back. And I see that even with some Marxists, whereas there is this attempt to historicize and say, okay, there's things in the Soviet Union that are very exaggerated. Actually, this wasn't that bad. This thing wasn't that bad. But then there's this, I think, desire a lot of us fall into which is to turn that into a grand narrative and turn it into ideology and get rid of the contradiction. So there might be some really big contradictions with the Soviet Union or past uh, socialist uh, regimes and to sort of try to get rid of that by saying, actually, no, this was inevitable. This is fine. This, this happened yeah. because it happened, you know, uh, insert so, rationalization. So, so the point is to, is to, is to look, at that, look at the past without nostalgia as a spur to, um, to be, become oriented to the future without utopianism. And I mean that in like, we're, 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 yes, utopia is a, is a possibility, but it isn't a naive or idealistic possibility. It has to be, as, as, as uh, Jameson puts it, a concrete idea, right? It has to be something mm -hmm. that is, is um, spatialized, that is thought out in the world. And so that's that's what I mean when I say that like this uh, thinking through postmodernity is not like it, it, your moral position towards postmodernism is kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, right? Your own personal uh, oh, postmodernity is great, postmodernity is awful. Postmodernity is a kind of condition of existence, right? Um, so the point is not to be like to pass judgment. The point is to develop a critical uh, understanding of it. And that involves looking backwards to, to, to its past and to, uh, to historicizing, but that also involves looking forward and doing that in a kind of simultaneous movement of thought. Right. Jameson also talks about one of the products of the culture of late capitalism is the move away from parody and towards pastiche, uh, the term uh, contrasting parody versus pastiche. Uh, I would like you to help us understand that a bit because I find that really interesting and I can think of some examples, but first, uh, how do you conceptualize that? Yeah. So um, parody and pastiche are super important as demarcating a shift from modernism into post-modernity. So 
in a parody is is uh, a kind of knowing appropriation of certain kind of original forms. So you can basically there's something for you to kind of mock. You can, you know there is a kind of original source that you can kind of uh, take something from and subvert it. There's a referent. There is there is yeah. a there is a reference point for you to use in pastiche. There is no original reference. There is instead just an accumulation of different stuff that gets kind of like pushed together into one object. And what Jameson um, does is he uses the example of Star Wars. So um, he says that Star Wars is basically it's a a uh, a pastiche of something earlier which was um, the old kind of Buck Rogers serials of the 1930s and 50s, 1930 to about 1950, these kind of Saturday morning cartoons set in space. But the, those, those, that reference point no longer exists. It has no kind of historical continuity, right? So we're harking back to something that's gone. So what we have to do is we have to kind of fill that, that, that cultural gap. And um, he says that Star Wars is a pastiche because it's, it's pulling from all of these older cultural forms but those cultural forms have been superseded they, they no longer mm. exist they're no longer around so what we have is this kind of like uh mishmash of, of various forms that have been pushed together to make one unified cultural text i mean a really good example would be like contemporary marvel movies right yeah they're, they're harking back to often uh, jack kirby's comics uh, from the mid 20th century and Kirby's comics were deliberately kind of modernist in style right they were echoing um classic mythology there were there were references to like Milton and Dante and psychedelia there was this idea that like, like the cultural form was engaged in a kind of higher discourse outside of its own reference points none of that exists right anymore right mm. none of that is none of that is present in contemporary marvel movies what they are is they are full of like uh the way that i put it is like they it's it's dangling keys in front of the audience and going do you remember the thing yeah it's just referencing it, itself the, it's, yeah, just it's all references to itself yeah yeah so that that's that i think is the kind of crucial distinction i hope i hope that kind of makes sense yeah i thought avengers is the perfect example like those type of movies where it's just a bunch of superheroes there isn't it doesn't really matter if there's any sort of narrative or reference to something other than itself it's just all these superheroes and yeah like you said it's do you remember this oh this superhero is here this let's just get them all in a room it'll look really cool uh, yeah 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 I mean, there, I think there's still some examples of, of parodies that that are decent. Like uh, I can think of Austin Powers parodying clearly James Bond. Like it, it is like making fun of that. Yeah. Whereas ones that are, don't have any references just to itself. I mean, there's tons of examples like the ones you said, but also I think one of the older examples might be Pulp, pulp Fiction because, and, and this is a, I, I kind of, I like Tarantino's movies aesthetically, but like they're postmodern as fuck. A lot of them, not just Pulp Fiction, but they only refer. To, I think the recent one, I forget what it's called, but the one with Brad Pitt, DiCaprio. Do you remember the name? Uh, I forget what it's called. But it was it was a typical Tarantino film. It, it was very recent, and it came out about a year ago. And all it did was all it was really there was like no story or anything. It was a reference to sixties and seventies culture, 
Um, uh, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? It's, yes, it's, yeah, that one, that one, yeah. It's Hollywood self-mythologizing, but you're exactly, pointing, yeah, yeah. pointing back to a history that never that doesn't exist, or even yeah. that never existed, right? Entirely, entirely fictionalized historicism. I, yeah, and just you, references to like uh, aesthetic icons, really, is yeah. Do you remember Marilyn Manson thing? and then <laughs> contemporary actors? It's just a bunch of yeah, mishmash of shit. <laughs> um, it's it's super interesting that you use the example of of Austin Powers, right? And that's obviously that's obviously harking back to the the Bond films of the sixties, but like again, it's a historical thing, right? So a parody required that what it was parodying to be a kind of existent cultural object right you a parody is in a way sort of parasitic so it needs something that is kind of alive and contemporary to be a parody of um but even even when we get something that comes close to being like a parody like like austin powers um it's still a kind of pastiche because that kind of bond no longer exists right it's a historical thing um, which quickly gets lost because Bond is one of those kind of cultural signifiers that just gets constantly rewritten. There is no, <laughs> there is no singular James Bond, right? There are, there are different reflections of specific historical times. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, Tarantino is, is a kind of like um, uh, kind of cultural DJ almost. Yeah, it really does just Remixing. take from everything. It's like a mel- it's like um like jambalaya of culture yeah, <laughs> pretty absolutely. much absolutely absolutely but um I, we can also see this play out in music a lot too is i think one of the best examples of i i really think pastiche and hauntology go so hand in hand hauntology being fisher's yeah. concept which is really essentially derived from jameson's ideas uh the idea of not imagining new futures as kind of resurrecting and mishmashing aspects of older culture but in music we see this everywhere uh, we we can see it. I mean, most notably, I would say vaporwave. I mean, I like vaporwave, but vapor <laughs> vaporwave is just the perfect example because it's an exa- It's a mishmash of '80s disco, but el- contemporary electronic and a bunch of other things. And we see it mishmashed with a lot of cartoons now, with various things like Simpson Wave. Uh, if you're familiar. <laughs> it's where they show like nostalgic moments of Simpsons episodes and play vaporwave and also add like trap beats to it now. So it's, a, it's really, it's almost like a nostalgia for millennials and even zoomers who are like harking back to this time. It's a mishmash of everything. And it's just signifiers that play on nostalgia, but nothing really connecting them. And I, I whenever I, I see stuff like that, it's just screams postmodern to me. I I mean, in a way, it's 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 a kind of very postmodern postmodernism because, like, you know, Fisher, Mark Fisher was writing about writing capitalist realism in the mid two thousands, which is like uh, an incredibly kind of ossified, frozen cultural moment. You know, he has this great piece where he's talking about the Arctic Monkeys, uh, and he's kind of scathing about them because they're this band that seem like they've just arrived from the seventies. Yeah they're, yeah, they're presented as being like so true. the cool new thing, and now we've gotten to the point where there's a nostalgia for that era of kind of nostalgic capitalist realism, which is just kind of profoundly depressing. <laughs> that like the mid two thousands, where where culture was at its kind of most frozen and stuck, 
has now become the thing that everyone wants to hark back to. Yeah, I was I always wondered because I I, remember, I saw this video from this YouTuber. I, I kind of forget his name, but he's not a theory channel, but they do they have a videos that say why nobody will remember the 2000s, why no one will remember the 2010s, why 2020 will be a bad decade. And they're basically they're, the crux of their analysis is basically the ontology argument we're making, except they don't really use those terms. It's not really with theory, but you can tell that that's kind of what they're saying. And it made me think, will we remember the 2000s? Because if you think about it, really ever since the Berlin Wall fell, there hasn't been really any sort of things in the 90s, the 2000s, or the 2010s that really stand out and define the decade, uh, musically or politically, but especially musically. Yeah, yeah. And like uh, Fisher, Mark Fisher has this really, really good um, essay on boredom, where he says that actually the kind of key marker of the last know, 20 years has been the impossibility of being bored. You know, because uh, boredom, like we're constantly kind of bombarded by information, by media, by this, um, uh, you know, disparate cultural landscape because uh, we carry it around and are sort of like uh, entranced by it. You know, we kind of constantly scroll. But he says like boredom, boredom is not bad. It's just negative. Right. So like if you were if you were a bored kid in the 70s, you would end up starting a punk band <laughs> like you know punk emerges as a kind of counter response to the boredom of like growing up in the suburbs um but like where is where where is the space for us to be bored and it's from boredom that things like cultural innovation can emerge and isn't yeah, it it's like it's, it's super interesting that like places like um vine and tiktok which uh were kind of really popular at specific generations uh depended upon like just being bored at home and having the ability to like point a camera at something like so boredom boredom is not necessarily something that's 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 bad it's almost something that's kind of impossible in in postmodern culture right because it depends upon this digitized uh dreamscape of of constant stimulation uh fisher called it depressive hedonia yeah, right. I, love, I love that term. Yeah, which is a which is a great it's very accurate because it's like you know, it's it's this hedonic pleasure of you know being plugged into the great machine, but it's also depressive because it is kind of soporific. So um, there's there's surely a psychoanalytic element to it as well because we kind of want what we can't have, right? There's always the lack. So if we're always fed things that satisfy our desire, it'll actually it doesn't cure that desire and actually makes us more depressive in a certain sense. And I think depressive hedonia is such a, it's such an accurate term because it's not depression because you can't get pleasure. It's because you can't do anything but get pleasure. And we can see this really personified or, or um, exemplified rather in many aspects of culture, I would say with the biggest pop star right now, Drake, the, the themes of like his songs are almost always, He's bragging about how many girlfriends he has or how many or how many cars he has, how rich he is. But he's like depressed in the songs, which is which is which has been the same since like 2008. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, uh, Mark Fisher makes his point in his book, Ghosts of My Life, which comes out in 2008. And it's like even even with all of the kind of 
increasing uh, means of access to cultural production, right? Uh, the fact that, um, you know, you can be a filmmaker, you can be a writer online, you can, uh, you can be a producer, you can make music online. In a way, since 2008, has there been a kind of seismic change or has it just been a kind of repetition? Uh, Jameson uses the phrase, the repetition of dead styles, right? This idea of like, everything is constantly harking backwards to something else rather than looking forward towards something new. Yeah, that's right. We didn't, we see nostalgia weirdly for like people, bands like um, Nickelback to a certain extent. Like I noticed that there's even rappers now who are sort of branding themselves as experimental and that they're changing genres, but they're actually kind of just copying the style and aesthetics of older bands, like uh, most notably Machine Gun Kelly, I think is like the most ontological rapper right now <laughs> yeah because he he like tries to dress like cobain kind of but then he'll also dress in this weird hippie style and then he'll try to emulate sort of like the guitar style of like nickelback and it's just a weird mishmash of toxicity and, and it, yeah it's it's a it's an interesting thing but yeah the themes yeah it does have a lot to do with um wanting what you can't have and i remember in ghost of my life fisher he writes about the song work hard, play hard, keep partying like it's your job. Mm-hmm. That yeah. that just that chorus perfectly sort of sums up the culture in a way of um well, I mean of late yeah. capitalism, but also it's it's interesting because you have to always work, right? The productivist element of capitalism, but we have to always consume, we have to always enjoy, and that's especially there's the big correlation between late capitalism and consumer capitalism, as he writes about it. And at least the imperial core countries, it's not longer. Capitalism doesn't really reproduce itself by producing things to other countries, but rather by having a a domestic consumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And exploiting, exploiting foreign labor, of course. Uh, Yeah. And and of course that consumption in a, in a, in a way has to be kind of like, uh, immaterial, which is why you saw the shift. I mean, Jameson says that postmodernism starts around 1976, with the various kind of like OPEC oil crises and the shifts in production mm. away from actual manufacturing, like the production of stuff into like financial abstraction, uh, a service-based economy, where it is the exchange of services or abstracted products, right? So you no longer, you no longer, I mean, uh, you no longer have, um, you know, uh, England, for example, in the 1980s had a massive de-industrialization. Um, yeah. uh, so a shift away from manufacturing and mining particularly, and much more focused onwards uh, in terms of like abstract financial production. Um, you know, the city of London being like one of the biggest banking centers, if not the biggest in the entire world. Right. So the whole point is to basically postmodernism doesn't necessarily depend on the production of new concrete stuff. It depends upon the proliferation of the abstract. Finance capital is a great example of that, too, because in a certain sense, finance capital is kind of simulacra because it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, theoretically speaking, let's look at the stock market, something I've I've analyzed a bit in one of my videos is. Yes, suppose the stock market is supposed to reflect the actual economy and how well a stock performs 
is supposed to reflect the profits of the company, but we don't really actually see that happen, uh, especially now, as often they're completely detached. Like we can look at uh, what I think is the biggest simulacrum stock is Tesla. Tesla doesn't actually, only recently started making profits, but its stock just soars through the roof and it's been creating multimillionaires and uh, Elon Musk's become one of the richest people because of that, just on paper. But there isn't actually a reference directly to the reality of its production. It's it's completely disconnected. And um, you see people's entire industries is uh, in banking sectors is people who make a living just buying and selling stocks, speculating on bonds, speculating on real estate, um, speculating on loans. That's that's another thing is just speculating how much people, how when people will pay things back or if they not, uh, people betting on whether a stock will go down. It's very immaterial and yeah, when you have an economy based on that, obviously it has its implications for labor because there's much higher unemployment and uh, further inequality, of course. I think one thing that's important to bring up, though, is that, again, if you historicize this, you actually see not just the points of rupture where things have kind of shifted, but you actually see the con continuities as well. And so, like, a really good example is something like um, something like Uber, for example. Or, or even better, even better, uh, WeWork. Uh, this is, right. you know, this company which was valued as being worth billions, literally billions of dollars, and used a lot of very kind of postmodern sounding language about what it did. Um, but what it did was one of the kind of oldest and most familiar uh, uh, ways of making money in capitalism, which was to be a landlord, to control property. True, um, yeah. Airbnb, so, uh, of course, yeah. being another example. Neo, yeah. Well, we can even call it neo-feudalism to an extent because it's just rent extraction. Yeah, rent extraction. It's this idea that, like, um, yes, there are, there are definite shifts that have happened, but it's important to be able to understand that this is, this is part of a kind of historical continuity as well. Yeah, those are all really interesting points. Uh, given we were talking about postmodernism as a sort of cultural tendency and that Jameson largely associate this with very negative things, uh, which would, you know, come to the surprise of uh, Jordan Peterson's idea of the postmodern cultural neo-Marxists, <laughs> you know, uh, but <laughs> so, you know, he'll say it's the, those people who are destroying Western culture when it's really uh, capitalism, just destroying all culture. Um, yeah, and, uh, and, uh, but there's on the flip side of that, there's, other theorists who analyze post-modernity as a sort of cultural epoch, most notably Jean-Francois Lyotard, who I would say has a different view almost um, of postmodernism, similar but different in that he actually has a more optimistic view to a certain extent, I would say, is that he sees postmodernism as the incredulity towards meta-narratives, when less and less people believe in sort of grand narratives, most notably after... Um, after World War II, but also after the Berlin Wall fell, in which people, there's no, there's no longer this capitalism versus communism are these big narratives. And of course, this decline started much earlier with the, the, fall, the so-called so death of God um, and separation from church and state. But Leotard sees this as a time in which there's a proliferation, proliferation of more differences in which there can be competing narratives and we don't just have to have one homogenous narrative and he seems to have like a more pos uh, 
optimistic view of this. What's your opinion on that? And uh, to what extent does Leotard differ from Jameson? Um, yes. Um, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about it because to me, this idea of the collapse of grand uh, meta-narratives seems like a pretty grand meta-narrative to be telling about history. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> true. And, and I, I sort of see the point um uh but i'm not sure i'm not sure i i kind of really agree um so there is this um uh there is this i kind of there is this kind of idea uh of skepticism towards meta narratives um but this is what this is what jameson says at the beginning of um uh, capitalism, uh, postmodernism, the cultural logic of late capitalism. And maybe this is kind of going to be a good uh, point of contrast between the two. So um, he says, I take it as axiomatic that modernist history is the first casualty and mysterious absence of the po postmodern period. In art, at least, the notion of progress and telos, you know, our endpoint, remained alive and well up to very recent times indeed in its most authentic, least stupid and caricatural form, in which each genuinely new work unexpectedly but logically out-trumped its predecessor. And then he says something very um, interesting. Dialectical history, to be sure, affirmed that all history worked uh, on its left foot, as it were, progressing uh, by way of catastrophe and disaster. But fewer ears heard that than believed the modernist aesthetic paradigm which was on the point of being confirmed as a virtual religious dox doxer when it unexpectedly vanished without a trace. This seems to me a more interesting and plausible story than Lyotard's related one about the end of master narratives. Uh, he says that this was never really a narrative in the first place. And he says, actually, the problem with, with Jean-Francois uh, Lyotard's um, kind of argument about postmodernism is that it imposes a very neat separation in history, right? Because it goes, okay, so at one point we still had master narratives and then it arrived and they were gone. Uh, and Jameson says, actually, narrative doesn't work like that, right? It, it might be that fewer, it isn't as culturally dominant, but the traces of master narratives kind of um, stick around and they have uh, echoes and remnants and kind of fragments all throughout the kind of contemporary age. Um, so a really good example of this is to look at something like Francis Fukuyama's famous essay on the end of history. You know, Fukuyama's point is like, well, you know, dominant Western liberal capitalism has won the day in the mid nineties. Um, and he doesn't say that this is a good thing. He says like, this, this is just the facts, right? So the point now is global management and distribution of resources. A few years ago, I think actually within the last few years, Fukuyama was talking about the necessity of a resurgence of socialist politics. So it's yeah, like, yeah, you know, well, you <laughs> saw it. It's because in his like right wing Hegelian view, you see his socialism is sort of like the antithesis to capitalism that will help create a balanced capitalism, like you know, a social democracy. Whereas when capitalism's left to totalize, it doesn't have anything holding it accountable, so it just regresses into whatever we see now. Yeah, so like the 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 whole point is like narratives are a lot harder to get rid of than we might think, um, and I I sort of see, I sort of see the 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 kind of attraction of thinking about it in those terms of like a collapse of meta narrative, but really, 
um, as as you put it, that that isn't a kind of uniquely postmodern thing, right? In, in a way, you can point that back to the the post Darwinian shock of the nineteenth century. You can go even further back, and you can point to that as the uh, to things like. Uh, the emergence of Enlightenment republicanism or Enlightenment humanism as a reaction against uh, theocratic feudalism. So, so I, th I think the concern that Jameson would have is that this this idea is it's too neat and it divides history too cleanly. And actually, it's much more important to understand these shifts as uh, there is a con continuous chain, right? So things things linger and have echoes and resonances. Um, and reappear and restage old problems. Um, so uh, I, I guess I guess I would I, I I mean I'm pretty I'm pretty obviously on Jameson's side of that kind of question. But I understand why people are kind of drawn to to, to thinking about it in those terms. But but it, it it's too sudden and it's too neat uh, to really give you a kind of clear sense of how things are working. And I think we, we also should look at it as a product of its time if we're to historicize too, is because Leotard sort of is writing a lot of this type of work after the fall of French communism, of Euro, the failure of Euro communism to really take over um, post-1968, mm -hmm. and um, as well as what some people saw as sort of a bureaucratic, disappointing socialism in the Soviet Union. And I think he's writing from that sort of historical epoch. So for him, he's saying, yeah, we don't believe in Marxism anymore. We don't believe in grand narratives. But really applying this today, I'm also really critical of this standpoint of Leotard's because I don't really think that we stopped believing in meta narratives. Maybe one could argue that we stopped believing in a totalizing narrative if there was ever one. If maybe we could say the Red Scare McCarthyism. Yeah or uh, perhaps, you know, uh, America against the Nazis, something like those could be grand narratives or, or state religion could be a grand narrative. But largely, I don't think we stopped, at least on a group level, we stopped, we did, definitely did not stop believing in grand narratives. I think people will always want some sort of meta narrative. Uh, we saw, I think, Jameson's own work, he talks about how in the 80s, there was a rise of cults, like a lot of people joining cults on a, on, or it might have been Mark Fisher who said this, I forget, it was one of them. But a lot of people joining tons of cults on a mass scale. And that's sort of, it comes from sort of the lack of meaning and then people wanting to fill that with these like micro, maybe you could call them micro meta narratives um, and sort of, but shift them on a sort of schizophrenic level. Uh, we're, we're always sort of because we can pick and choose so many things in capitalism and because information diffuses so fast, we can sort of replace and recycle meta narratives all the time. That, at least it's sort of how I see it. Even more so now applying this to the digital age with things like echo chambers is people can easily develop a sort of um, cultist ideology or some kind of meta narrative that will rationalize life for them and then they can just change that i think have you seen the the meme or the meme video that said uh, that showed the guy who's on his computer all the time and he changes his like ideology every 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 like very fast he's oh, watching yeah, a bunch yeah, yeah. of youtubers and he's this he's like <laughs> an anarchist at one point then he's a marxist leninist then he's a fascist then he's a then he's a um, liberal, whatever, like people change their ideologies so fast now. So I don't think we ever stop believing in meta narratives. It's just 
they sort of shift much more fast and they're much more fragmented is how I would put it because people can really consume them essentially that we can consume them uh, in, in, very, in a much more diffuse way. And there's a broader problem with this uh, idea of Lyotard's um, like the, the exact, so the, <clears throat> this definition is taken from a book called um, the postmodern condition, a report on knowledge. Yeah. And the exact quote that people use is simplifying to the extreme. I define postmodernity as a skepticism towards meta-narrative. Mm-hmm. And like he's he's the, like the whole point of the book is not necessarily about postmodernism, right? The whole point of the book is it's a uh, it's commissioned by um, uh, Quebecois uh, universities because they want to understand how technology has influenced uh, the communication of science. Uh, And this chimes exactly with what you were just saying about like um, what we have. uh, The the book kind of argues that there is this diffusion of knowledge um, into what what he he draws from Wittgenstein. And he says that instead of a singular idea of what science or what knowledge is, we have a plurality of language games. We have different ways of communicating um, based on, uh, and this is a technological problem. So like e- even even the, uh, the postmodern condition doesn't say what people who use that think it says, right? It's, it's much more closely aligned to what you were just talking about, right? With this, this idea of like um, pluralities of, of communities, meaning uh, different, what, what Raymond Williams would call different structures of feeling. And you also have uh, different uh, language codes or language games that different groups play, which is what uh, totally allows people to move through all of these distinct, you know, uh, oh, three months, three months ago, I was, I was an anarchist. Now I'm a anarcho Bidenist. Now I'm a, now I'm a social Democrat. Now I'm a Marxist now. Like, so it's this diffusion of information, which is, which uh, is in and of itself a condition of postmodernity as well. Right. Yeah. Also, the way I interpret it as well is not just that Leotard saying that suddenly now meta narratives are bullshit, but I think Leotard sort of has always been skeptical of meta narratives yeah, and, and oh, cool. science, and that he only thinks only when, at the time he's writing that only now people are being more skeptical towards it, because he seems. I mean, really, the thesis of of his arguments, especially regarding language games, is essentially that science itself is not object like science itself isn't always objectively true it needs to le- legitimize itself through my through language games and power and uh, legitimation narratives at least I, I like this term i like to use a lot now it's legitimation yeah, uh, narratives is because it, it's science it's one thing you find certain studies and how you do them but they don't mean anything if you don't legitimize them in a way that is political and in the same way, sometimes you can have questionable science that legitimizes itself. Uh, and we've seen that plenty of times in history. People used to believe in race science because it was obviously convenient at the time, even though it was completely pseudoscience. We, we saw that used to be taken as science. And I, I see that is he's pointing at a, a problem that always existed, sort of a skepticism that maybe all the time these meta narratives should have been looked at uh, with a form of skepticism, but he's saying that 
only now it's sort of coming apart. Whereas I would say, yeah, it's not really coming apart, so to speak. It's just that people are, yeah, it's changing into a bunch of different narratives. Um, yeah, that's, that's how I would put it. But the skepticism towards grand narratives and I would, I would say universal truths sort of has been echoed by a lot of other thinkers. And this is where we can get into the other part of the conversation regarding postmodernism as a stylistic tendency. Most notably, Foucault is, and Derrida, to an extent, are famous for being very skeptical of the notion of universal truths, abstract truths. Yeah, how does this relate to postmodernism as a cultural tendency? And how does it differ as a stylistic, as a stylistic um, tendency, which I think is hard, much harder to point, to pin down? Yeah, I, th- I think Derrida is probably the, the best example here, right? So Derrida's, Derrida is, is, a, is a fairly, is a pretty complicated writer, but like very broadly, his concern is with questioning the the assumptions of reading that have built up over in some cases centuries of like this is what that means and derrida says that actually language is incredibly complicated and communication is never really as certain as we might think because language defines itself negatively a word means what we have decided that it means precisely because it doesn't mean everything else and so what this does is it means that the language is unstable. It includes its own negation within itself. So communication becomes this very fraught and actually quite complicated thing. Um, and yes, in part, this is because of a, a increasing skepticism towards um, the, the easy legitimation of, um, of, of discourse. But uh, this is the kind of stylistic kind of trick of postmodernism. Not trick, because that sound, makes it sound like a, a deception, but, but the stylistic concern of postmodernism is if, if language games go all the way down to the root and if language always includes its own negation, if language includes its own uh, negative, um, then how do we make sure that meaning is communicated? And Derrida's point is to go, actually, the very first step is to be incredibly aware of the possibility that meaning is not as transparent and straightforward as we think um mm-hmm. just because yeah. just because we think we've said something and really and... Th- there's an ethical dimension to this as well which is the other thing i actually think is super important to bring up which is that what this depends upon is like being willing to take the ri- communication is a great risk right but it's an important one because if we don't communicate there's there is no exchange there is no there is no actual kind of connection. And it's not a surprise that, that Derrida, um, you know, the kind of bete noir, the kind of great villain of, for people like Jordan B. Peterson, um, his big mm-hmm. influence was um, the Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, who wrote an awful lot about hospitality. You know, uh, Derrida was, was uh, French-Algerian, very much had the experience of being the outsider, you know, kind of dislocated. Um, and... It's this this concern with like how how do we how do we communicate between others? What are the mediating structures that make meaning possible, and what do those structures exclude? Um, is a really kind of important philosophical question, but it's also a kind of ethical question as well, right? Right, and also I think it's it's really important to point out the connection between post structuralism. 
because obviously what Derrida's conclusions really are is the findings of structuralism, Ferdinand de, la, de Saussure, the idea that, for example, like a signifier doesn't immediately, the thing isn't the thing. There's the signifier, for example, like the cat isn't the cat. It's just the term we call the cat. But signifiers only have meaning in relation to other systems of signifiers or so other signs. So like, I mean, the classic example, obviously, is the is um is like a red doesn't make sense without seeing blue and green or a stoplight. You don't, you don't know that go, but green means go if you don't know that the red means stop. There is a relation, but he just takes us to its conclusion sort of by suggesting that what this really, what this suggests is that there's a highly subjective element to meaning and how it's mediated through language and um, how this plays a role in our interpretive power with reading. And I think this is where I think a lot of people like Peterson draw the connection between the relativism. And I wouldn't say he's a relativist because no, he's not saying that every interpretation is as good as any other, of course, but rather that language can heavily totally mediate how we understand certain texts. And I think the perfect example is how I remember when I was in school, we had to read the classics like um, a lot of Orwell, Animal Farm, 1984. But the way we, in, the way that our teacher interpreted that, the way we interpreted that, was totally skewed, and that's because the way we understood certain language, like there was no connection between the fact that a farm, right, was basically capitalism, and the farmer was the capitalist, and the animals were the workers. So the the anti-capitalist part of Animal Farm is not noted. But the anti-communist aspect of it, the depiction of Stalinism or whatever, is the part that's emphasized. And that's heavily to do with we're kind of limited by what we have and our what parts of language we emphasize and give meaning to and as to how we interpret text. And it's what suggests is that there isn't a universal meaning of that text. Like maybe someone might think that all of Orwell's work is just blatantly anti-communist and that's it there isn't a critique of capitalism or anything and um yeah that, that that's me applying what I, how i think of derrida but this do you think it's accurate to really say that there's a moral relativist aspect to postmodern theory because i think that's the concern people have with it i think i think the the a more accurate way of thinking about it is the awareness that the decisions are not uh, a kind of ethical decisions. Even co communication itself is never certain. Um, and so, so Derrida uh, particularly is concerned with actually like stop making all of these grand sweeping assumptions. You don't know for sure that your message is being received and understood the way that you think it is. You know, he was an exceptionally careful kind of close reader. If anything, like way too, way too close. Uh, you know, he, he would like pour over, uh, over literature and would like be obsessed with the idea of like a comma. You know, what does this mean? How do we understand this? Well, how does it change meaning? So I, I understand the concern, but really, if anything, Derrida is trying to make us less, not, not more relativistic, but less... Um, immediately certain about the nature of communication 
like trying yeah, to he's act. trying to make sure we're not blinded by our subjectivity rather than yeah, saying, right. oh, yeah. everyone's subjectively correct or everyone's subjective yeah, cause, has because that's not the point. The point is like, actually, there, there is a degree to which we do not know. There is a degree to which mm-hmm. there is um, always every act of communication, every act of writing, uh, every act of speech has within it its own failure. Um, and like, it, 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 from a certain point of view, that this makes kind of communication generally a, a really important, uh, fragile and quite precious thing. This idea that we can, um, there can be a meeting, there can be an exchange. Uh, and that depends upon a kind of uh, ethical openness to, to, to having our mind changed, right? It isn't about being a relativist, but it's about uh, a kind of epistemological humility, right? Going, actually, our presuppositions might be wrong. Um, mm-hmm. which is a really important thing to thing to be able to do if you are actually going to be able to to meet what what theorists would call the capital O other, right? That that which is completely different from yourself requires not just an act of outward speech, kind of reaching out towards them, but also being willing to go every, that to kind of self-reflect and go, actually, what I thought I knew, what I thought I believed uh, was either wrong or was incorrect or has to be modified or has to be changed in light of this. Yeah, I mean, this is why I think there's a lot of debate as to whether it's even accurate to label Derrida as a quote-unquote postmodernist, because is what he is saying really against modernist assumptions, or is it really against modernism? I I wouldn't really necessarily say so, if anything is more correcting mistakes that are in modernist um, philosophy. And in this way, you can kind of see Jameson's point about there being continuities between modernity, modernism, and postmodernity, right? Uh, this is this is it's about turning uh, Derrida's philosophical project is definitely about kind of turning uh, back onto the the history of philosophy and literature and culture, and actually questioning the assumptions of interpretation that modernism have, has generated. Not, not so we can discount all of that stuff and not so we can kind of, you know, destroy Western civilization, but simply so that it can be uh, understood with, with a degree of kind of like acknowledgement of the contingency of our knowledge, right? Knowing yeah, that we could, and knowing and understanding that we could be wrong. Um, and I think it's no coincidence that Derrida, unlike a lot of other French theorists in his era, did not abandon Marxism. Yeah. Um, he actually was a Marxist, I think, until he died. And um, even he, he even tried to reclaim Marx with uh, the ghosts of Marx or whatnot. That um, we might try yeah, to say uh, yeah, that spe- Marx is irrelevant. Marx. Specters of Marx, yeah. That he's not irrelevant anymore, but his ghost still kind of haunts us, still haunts capitalism. The communism will still be capitalism's shadow. Yeah, you know, the, the, and that's a classic kind of Derridian point, right? This idea that like, you thought you'd gotten rid of something, but it can always return. You thought you had enforced kind of certainty, capitalism, but communism still haunts, like, and as, and as dominant as capitalism might seem, its negation is, is still present. And that, that's really the kind of like, um, uh, kind of classic Derridian point about capitalism generally, right? This idea that like things can be undone as much as they are done. Speech right. acts are not always certain and closed, 
but they're open to kind of being respoken or reinterpreted. Yeah, exactly. The other theorists also highly associated with a stylistic tendency that could be labeled postmodern is Michel Foucault. And I can see it more with him because I think the conclusions one can take from his work are much more radical and really can poke a hole in a lot of modernist theory. Like most notably, let's take, well, all all his work has the same tendency in that it, it runs through assumptions made in narratives, made historically, and sort of debunking them, essentially, showing that there isn't really like this linearity towards to history like we think there is like we can take um I forget what it's called madison civilization and how what we regarded as crazy or mentally ill sort of changed totally throughout history there wasn't this one idea uh, at one point in the ancient greeks regarded people who were quote-unquote crazy as speaking to the gods and then yeah later in um later on people started imprisoning crazy crazy people and there would be like a sort of a zoo people would go to to visit and then sort of now we try to reintegrate them and and impose a sort of normality and uh, the idea of what a normal subject is and Foucault kind of makes us question whether what even is this normal subject and what is this abnormal subject and how it's totally socially constructed largely and he also he does this with, I would say, the most radical one. Well, I mean, he's also famous for a history of sexuality and how it's not like we just, over time, as progress happened, women got more rights and people became more sexually liberated. Actually, there's all these parts of discontinuity in history where some parts of history were more progressive than others or more sexually free than others. And then it's not just this linear trajectory and uh, an order of things probably that what I'd say is the most radical one in that it sort of really questions our whole basis of knowledge and what truth is, how, how, what we consider to be truth and what we consider to be objective science has changed throughout history. And I mean, he gets this sort of from uh, Thomas Kuhn, not to throw too yeah. many names, but like yeah, the yeah. paradigms, how we analyze science has changed over time and totally affects our findings. Now, this can be, I can see why some people, regardless if Foucault is correct or not, people might see this and say, Foucault might be setting the stage for a relativism. And that can be really dangerous. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, but then you go, then you go, okay, uh, why? Like, uh, a lot of Foucault's work is, is, in, is incredibly historical, archival and descriptive rather than proscriptive. Um, I mean, there's there's some contention around his later work, particularly his attitude towards neoliberalism, um, that is, you know, maybe we don't have time to get into that right now. But um, the broad point, again, is like, is is this relativism or is it simply, um, is is it enforcing a kind of relativism or is it actually showing the ways in which a kind of quote unquote normality has been socially constructed and enforced. That's the interpretation I take. Yeah, and I think it's certainly more the latter, right? Uh, But the conclusions of that are, you know, for for our our, our lobster fans, the lobster boys, is that, okay, this is is relativism that's aiming to destabilize society. But the, the Foucaultian point is actually, well, what you're doing is enacting the kind of disciplinary mechanisms of of 
of what Foucault would call governmentality in order to enforce a socially constructed norm. So uh, that, that, that accusation of relativism is a kind of disciplinary procedure. It's a way of enforcing and reinforcing uh, this, this quote-unquote norm that has to be defended, which only serves to under, under, underscore the ways in which that, that, uh, the, the natural, uh, in inverted commas, has been socially constructed. It's just because something is uh, naturalized does not make it natural. Um, exactly. I mean, that's what I think is so useful about postmodern theory. And while it might be scary for a lot of people, probably because intuitively people just don't like hearing that a lot of the things they took for granted are actually horse shit right it's not a come <laughs> it's not it's not it's not comforting it, it's it makes sense why peterson someone who is so consumed with grand narratives like the his his secular atheism that we need a we need a revitalization of faith or his narrative about the enlightenment and liberalism is his narratives about uh communism and whatnot it really sets the stage that if you if you see what we can do with postmodern theory for example we can look at something like uh, the narrative that uh, communism doesn't work or socialism doesn't work, whatever. Marxism failed. A lot of people just take this for granted. They just believe it blindly, completely. And they'll say, how, well, if, if you say that this is wrong, how can it be wrong if everyone believes it? Well, a person who you know, has the theoretical lens of, of Foucault could look at and see, well, actually, there was a time in which we used to believe that homosexuality was evil. We used to believe um, burning witches. We used to believe in all kind of crazy shit. We used to believe that um, burn, we should burn crazy people. We noticed that throughout history, there's all these different parrot. We used to believe the earth was flat. And I think yeah. maybe in 20, 20, 20 years, we'll be like, we used to believe in neoclassical economics. <laughs> and we, we used to believe that we need to balance the budget of fake money. You know, all kind of crazy things that we believe, right? Because so, what happens when you question this socially constructed norm is that you broaden the possibilities of existence, right? Mm -hmm. When you go, actually, this is not a law of the universe. This is not something that is unquestionable. This is, you actually open the door to the possibilities of new forms of life. Right. So if there is going to be a recuperation of the utopian of like, actually, right, what does our future look like? Um, questioning those social norms, questioning the social construction of norms is an incredibly valuable thing to do because it doesn't. And I, I think you're right. The kind of response to it is driven by a lot of fear. It's driven by by people who um, who kind of wonder what that means for their own form of life. Um, Adorno writes think, a lot about this. Yeah. Um, yeah they yeah. actually go on. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's the, the that's the positive aspect of this kind of like way of thinking is that yes, it's a critique, right? It's a it's a negative position, but in it, it carries with the possibility of a kind of liberative aspect, right? You liberate new forms of of knowing, you liberate new forms of uh, uh, social existence, and of course, like of individual subjectivity. Mm -hmm. There's I, the way I like to always put it is theory and philosophy's purpose should be to ask more questions rather than give more answers, because you can't even get any sort of accuracy in your answers without deconstructing what you already take for granted. And Theodore Adorno, who is not really labeled in the postmodern milieu, but 
who has a lot of the same skeptical tendencies. And he has um, an essay, well, in, in his uh, book called Against Epistemology, has an essay called The Tyranny of Identity, which I really like. And he connects sort of identity thinking, the tendency to sort of, I guess, how we could maybe call putting grand narratives on things or try to encapsulate everything, to put it in little boxes. And it comes from a fear, as he calls, to, um, to, to, not, to, to not cope with the chaos of reality. It's to sort of uh, impose one's ideas onto reality rather than actually swimming in the chaos of reality. Right. Yes. And that's, yes. it's really uncomforting, right. To, to be in that sort of state, especially for people who have lived in a sort of enclosed ideological framework for very long, it's not very psychologically comforting to really question everything, you know, but I mean, if you go back to the origin of philosophy or of philosophy, as we, we know it, like with uh, the ancient Greeks, this is what it was always about, was about questioning these things. And I think anyone who is regardless of their political tendencies, should should look back on that and see how maybe these so-called this boogeyman of postmodern theorists, they're really f- doing justice to the original project of philosophy and I think what its greatest value is. Yeah, precisely. Like, you know, this idea that these are kind of like uh, thinkers or a kind of a, a way of experiencing things that's out to kind of destroy is really, it was really short-sighted but because if you actually engage with it like um jameson writes about about contemporary culture incredibly well derrida is 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 fascinated with the history of philosophy foucault is an excellent historian like the whole point is to is to truly engage to truly continue the critical project of of thought this is the places that it takes you yeah very well said um, I think that really all illus- illustrates why it's useful to maybe learn postmodern theory, because it's not just, you know, the reactionaries who oppose it, but also I noticed there's a lot of Marxists who tend to say, okay, why do we need to learn all this French bullshit? <laughs> why do we have to learn all this? this they'll, they'll try to read um, Foucault or Derrida or someone, and it's like, it's more complicated than reading someone like Lenin. And they'll they'll just give up and say, okay, you know, I don't understand it, so it must be a bunch of horse shit. It must be a bunch of semantics. Why do we need to learn it? We need revolution now, okay? And that's a tendency I do see. It's people being afraid of what they don't understand. Um, but I think all of this really illustrates why it is useful to kind of learn this theory or at least maybe respect its contributions because there's, I think, a, a short-sightedness that this sort of analysis, this type of theory takes away from Marxism or delegitim- can delegitimize Marxism. And I don't think that's what they're really trying to do. While there's some who maybe sort of abandon Marxism, like Foucault, but De- Derrida and Jameson, they clearly don't. And I think uh, as a Marxist, they shouldn't, they shouldn't take it like a religion. So there are some things about the Marxist meta-narrative that maybe should be questioned, like the idea that communism is inevitable. Well, what if it just isn't? right? Obviously, a lot of what Marx said didn't happen. Like, it, revolutions didn't succeed in the most developed countries, and the imperial court actually happened in the developing world. It's the opposite of what he predicted. So clearly, the, there's things to question. And that doesn't mean you abandon on the, the goal of Marxism, or whether Marxism is subjectively good or bad. 
it's just yeah. it's just a way of anal- analyzing reality, which I think is actually in line with historical, or I would say, dialectical materialism, rather yeah, than um, an abandonment of it. Completely. This 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 idea of like it, you're completely correct. The the key word there is like this subjectivism, right? Um, and like M- Marxism is always always held to be to the kind of uh, existence of an external reality, right? We don't we don't go oh well the world doesn't match up exactly with what the the sacred books say. Ergo, the world must be wrong because um, that's what that's the position that you end up kind of like forcing yourself into. In fact, it's much it's much more a continuation of of. Um, Georgi Lukács, the the great uh, Hungarian philosopher, wrote um, uh, an essay called um, "What Is Orthodox Marxism," and Lukács made the point that Marxism is 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 absolutely to be rejected as a dogma. It's about a a particular method, and the method is historical materialism, right? So that method allows for a comprehensive understanding of the world, which is what leads, like this idea of like, well, we we have to have a revolution, ergo. It must look identical to the revolution that happened in 1917. Russia is is completely backwards because what has to has to begin with is a com- complete and accurate understanding of the existent reality that what what Jameson would call the historical and social totality of the present. If we want to have any uh, kind of hope of actually understanding it and ergo changing it. Hundred, one hundred percent. That was very well, uh, very well put. Um, we covered a lot in this podcast and um, just one last question. If you have any recommendations as to how someone who's looking to learn about what this postmodern stuff is, what would you recommend? Because I would not recommend anyone who's new to read any of these texts directly just because they are very difficult. I think one should maybe look at some sort of guide or something first and then read the texts. Because going yeah. straight first, it's not like it's not going to be like reading the Communist Manifesto. No, this is this is kind of complicated. I think the thing that I I recommend as a really good primer is uh, Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, which will take you to some very interesting places. Um, it's it's well worth understanding the the kind of network of connections and references that he draws, even if in many ways it's it's very it's a product of like 2006 so it's like it's limited in some ways because it is a kind of polemic that was issued to be very contemporary but i still think it's one of the most valuable places to start um on revolutionary left radio um i did an episode with them about um mark fisher and an episode about frederick jameson um i would i would i would give postmodernism uh the cultural logic of like capitalism a go it can be slow going so do be patient with it and read it read it slowly um and uh see if it unfolds but i'm i'm on twitter so come ask me questions about it um i've written my own uh brief guide a kind of little primer on um jameson and this that book specifically um so i guess those would be the places that i would start and just because something is is um complex and jameson writes in a very scholastic way I think, you know, people should be willing to give it a go and see what they can get out of it for themselves. Sure. Yeah, it was awesome having you on. I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. I think I really hope it's helpful for the listeners who want to, you know, start learning this stuff because it's, I, it's what I really encourage is people should really study all sort of theoretical tendencies that can help understand the world because 
while one should not only interpret the world, but want to change it, they have to sort of understand and adapt to it in order to do so. So yeah, um, just just one more time, uh, Literate Guide, uh, where, where can people find you and, uh, and your social media? Yeah, uh, come find me on Twitter, at the Literate Guy. Uh, I'm on YouTube on that name as well. Um, and uh, do find the podcast, it's at Horror Vanguard on Twitter. And wherever you get your podcast from, you'll be able to search for us and find us. Um, so thank you so much for having me on. I hope this has been useful. And uh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Okay. If you guys enjoyed, please share this with your friends or anyone who you think will maybe find this useful in their learning journey. And if you really enjoy the podcast, as well as the content I do on my channel, One Dime, please consider supporting me on Patreon. And then I can have more resources to make more videos and also possibly even do videos and podcasts full time at some point. Separate us, make you hate your neighbors, blade us with a sketch all in the matrix simulation. They read your metadata, waiting for a perfect day to rage you. The whole time you playing face up, doing Jake a favor. Down on the pavement, sign this affidavit. Quiet and skept infotainment, got your wife and kids. The hive mind against the 5%. What's on the menu? New eyes and tits, new smiles and lips, every size will fit in this live cybernet. I like the Bible tech, get hit with a barrage. The mods asleep, we on the job. Thieves and frauds, kings and gods, see the kings and they facade, pump your fist if you gon' ride or die, it's in the stars my brother. Flicking up all day.